on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning biblical issues, maybe the understanding of a particular passage or an issue you're facing in your life and ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, it's 525-1859. It's area code 843 for our Georgia listeners. And if you are listening in another part of the United States and want to use our toll-free number, we uh, broadcast through the Internet around the world at WAGP.net. The toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live or simply dictate your question, however you're most comfortable. You can also email us here directly into the studio. There's a screen in front of us. And your email will come right in. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, this past weekend, you had mentioned something in your message. And, uh, um, and to, coincidentally, this question had come in before your message. Uh, Darina from Augusta, Georgia writes, what does the Seventh-day Adventist church believe? Uh, will there be Seventh-day Adventists in heaven? I work with a man who's a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he and his family follow a church-ordained diet and other things that evangelicals do not. Is it a cult? Well, it's a good question, and I suppose, and depending on what part of the world you're in, if you ask the question, will Seventh-day Adventists be in heaven? For some people, that would be like asking, well, will Muslims be in heaven or will Mormons be in heaven? And they don't view them as Christians at all. So, for instance, uh, the week about 10 days ago, I left the Ukraine. I was in Eastern Europe. And if you ask the average uh, person in all of the former Slavic countries of the Soviet Union or Seventh-day Adventist Christians, they'll tell you absolutely not. And, of course, in that part of the world, they still embrace some of really the damnable doctrines of Ellen G. White. You know, most groups that are, you know, in have drifted away from the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all. Usually there is a founder or a person who has some extra revelation, some dream, some vision, some direct speaking, they say, from God to them. And so is the case with Ellen G. White, with her multiple visions that she supposedly had. And she's written some of those down, and people follow them very carefully. Uh, There was a book years ago in the first edition uh, written by Walter Martin entitled The Kingdom of the Cults. It's been since updated. But in that book, he included Seventh-day Adventists. And he admitted that there were some Seventh-day Adventists that were definitely believers, but many, of course, who are not. And his uh, really point of contention 
was where some of them stood on some major, really non-negotiable doctrines. So, for instance, Ellen uh, G. White said, and this is obviously a heresy, that Jesus had a sin nature, but just never sinned. Well, no, he, he didn't have a sin nature. What made him the savior of the world was that he never sinned and did not inherit the uh, na- nature of Adam. Uh, God uh, supernaturally brought about the conception of Christ by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, overshadowing the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so without a human father, Jesus, the eternal deity, took on perfect sinless humanity and they're inseparably combined into one person. He's not half man and half God. He's not all God and no man. He's not all man and no God. He's the God man, truly God, truly man. And his deity and humanity are inseparably combined is what we discover in the scripture. And so they are inseparably combined in the sinless son of God, the one who is tempted in all ways as we and yet without sin. So Jesus never sinned and did not have a sin nature. So this was a lady who is really confused on some issues. Uh, She also thought, of course, that the seventh day is the day that God's people should worship in lieu of the first day of the week. Uh, it is true under the old covenant that God's people worshiped on the seventh day, but the Lord of the Sabbath, Christ himself, changed the day that we should worship on. The principle of still gathering together with God's people one day in seven for refreshment is a binding principle. And so in that sense, you can say the fourth commandment is still applicable today. But like the fifth commandment, where God attaches a promise uh, to honoring your father and mother, that it may be well with you, that speaks of quality of life, that it might be long with you, that speaks of length of life, that you might live a long time in the land. When you come into the new covenant, God broadens the promise, and he doesn't just say in the land, but he says on the earth. Why? Because the fifth commandment is still binding, but the application has changed. And so it is with the day of the week. God's people meet on the first day of the week. It is true. And Seventh-day Adventists will often turn to the Acts and they'll say, well, look, they went to the synagogue on Saturday. Of course they did. They took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so you see a time of transition taking place in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And there are some things that were unique to the book of Acts. For instance, there are no apostles today, but you have apostles in the book of Acts. Now, there are some, you might drive by their church and on the title and the sign, it says apostle so-and-so, but there are no apostles today. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have been personally called by him. And if indeed both of those were true, then you would have the signs, wonders, and miracles, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that only an apostle can do. So uh, Acts is a transitory book. It's not that you can't learn doctrine from it. You can. Uh, Fifteen years into the history of the church, uh, you read later on in the book of Acts that on the first day of the week, they gathered uh, to break bread. And so, again, it's a time of transition. Things are changing. Uh, And by the time the epistles are written, again, you discover that on the first day of the week, like 1 Corinthians 16, uh, they are meeting uh, to, to worship the risen Lord. So uh, Seventh-day Adventists are confused on a number of issues. Uh, you mentioned here in your question dietary issues. They take the dietary laws of the Old Testament. In fact, they typically go way past that. Um, they advocate that you cannot eat the unclean meats of the Old Testament when, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus declared all meats clean, Mark seven seventeen, 
Acts 10, God uses a vision with clean and unclean animals in the vision to teach Peter that he is not to be biased towards the Gentile peoples uh, of the world who were considered in the mind of a Jew as an unclean person. And so in the vision where you have all kinds of four-footed animal, clean and unclean in the sheet that lowers on three different occasions in the, in the dream God gives him, God says, take and eat. God never uses error to teach truth. You can bank on that. I don't care what illustration, parable, story that's being told in the scripture. God always uses truth to teach truth. So God clearly affirms that God's people can eat any kind of foods in the day that we live in. Uh, So again, you have to let scripture interpret scripture. There's a lot of godly Seventh-day Adventists in this nation who know and love the Lord. But again, they're, they're confused on so many different issues. And there's a lot of error that is in their teachings. And you've heard me say it before. There's a lot of wrong things that you can believe and still go to heaven on. Uh, but you cannot deny, of course, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And I would say most Adventists, at least their pastors, have that doctrine in this country, not in many other countries of the world in which I travel. But at least in this country, they have that doctrine. They may have some aberrant doctrines in other areas, but they have the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in place, which is, of course, necessary to get you into the kingdom of heaven. And usually when most people are converted and they start reading the Bible because they have the mind of Christ and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, they end up rejecting Seventh-day Adventism. Some people stay babes in Christ and don't mature much, and they cling on to traditions that men teach that aren't really clearly affirmed in the word of God. Anyway, so I hope that helps. Um, You know, like with anyone, don't assume they're a Christian. Forget whether they're an Adventist. Let's say they're a Baptist or Presbyterian or whoever. You know, ask your friend there at work the diagnostic questions. See on what basis they think God should let them into heaven. You know, there are some denominations that have some gross error in it, but they may have the gospel. But what I've discovered over the years that I've been in the ministry over 40 years now that in many of those denominations, you can kind of toss a coin in the air and it's a 50-50 chance they even know what the gospel is. So when I witness the Seventh-day Adventists, many times what I hear, why should God let you into heaven? Well, you know, I, I, I keep the Sabbath day and I follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament and I've done these commandments and I think that's why God will let me into heaven because in the mind of most Adventist pastors and teachers and preachers, and I've been to some of their conferences years ago, and they would say, well, a mark that you're really, truly, genuinely converted is that you'll obey his commandments. And so if you're not observing the Sabbath day or you're not observing, you know, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you're probably not converted. And so they often look at evangelical Christians with a sense of disdain because mainline evangelicals don't follow those commandments because we see them as uh, time bound to the Old Testament and not applicable to the church today. So there's a lot of confusion. And so what a lot of people in the pew hear is that somehow they're saved by doing these things. And the, and the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is really muddied. And that's unfortunate. So that's why I say usually when I witness to an Advent, it's about 50-50 chance they even know what the gospel is. 
And so don't assume anything, whatever denomination they're from. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. I guess they hung up, but uh, hopefully they'll call back. Uh, in the meantime, we um, did have a question that was left over from a couple of weeks ago, back when uh, we were just getting ready to vote, and unfortunately we did not get to it in time, but it's always a timely question. A listener wanted to know if it is biblical for a Christian to vote and what scripture might address this. All right. Well, I just flipped to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and let me read a text of scripture. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So plainly here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's clear that God has called us as his people, as Christians, to be salt and light. And certainly one way that we can shine our light and rub our salt. Light dispels darkness. Salt preserves righteousness is by voting our consciences. Uh, God, God doesn't call his people to live in some kind of a stained glass prison where our voices aren't heard. It's uh, Remember, there are three institutions that God established. He established first the family, then he establishes government, and then he establishes the church. And it's inconceivable to me that God Almighty, who institutes and establishes the concept of human government, then tells his own people to stay out of it. Well, people say to me, well, Pastor, you know, politics are dirty. Well, that's like saying, you know, germs are dirty, and so doctors ought to stay out of a hospital. That's, that's ridiculous. Uh, and another passage of Scripture, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God." And so in America, our Caesar is the government of the people, for the people, by the people. And if you don't vote, you're really not rendering to Caesar that which belongs to Caesars. And I think one of the great scandals of of our day is bad citizenship. Uh, When Christians aren't even registered to vote. Uh, And it's really sad. And I, I don't think it's a widespread problem, at least in the church I pastor, though when I came to Community Bible Church, I found that many of the leaders weren't even registered to vote. And that to me is pathetic. Uh, By God's grace, that's changed. Um, But the sad thing is that many of God's people aren't even registered to vote. And again, it's not a matter of party. It's a matter of persons. I don't care if a person's a Democrat or a Republican or a Christocrat or whatever else you can think of. Um, Make sure that his values are core biblical values. If they not, if they're not, then you shouldn't vote for him. You say, well, I've always been a Republican, and I always vote a straight Republican ticket. Well, what if your Republican counterpart is in favor of abortion? Are you going to vote for the aborting of little babies? Um, We've got two Democratic pastors here in the region uh, that I am, and one is, uh, I'm talking about uh, South Carolina politics now. And so the man who supposedly represents me, I live out in Seabrook. Uh, in the South Carolina uh, legislature, he is in favor of abortion. He's a pastor. He's an African-American pastor. He's in favor of the murder of the little babies, and he is the one who's blocked the bill in the state of South Carolina, and I think many of the Christians. 
you know, the African-American Christians who, if they really knew what this man stood for, they would not vote for them. But some that I've met have said to me, well, pastor, you know, you know, we, we support, you know, we need African-Americans in politics. And I would say a hearty amen to that. But I said, you don't need people who are in favor of the murder of the, of little babies. And let me tell you, when his, his number comes up, I'm going to make sure everyone knows his name and people know what this is about. So it's not a matter of party. It's a matter of persons. Um, and it's not totally a matter of persons or a matter of politics or a matter of policies. Ultimately, it's a matter of biblical principles on which this nation was founded. And we are a nation with a Judeo-Christian ethic. Our Constitution reflects that. And God's people are not called to stay out of politics. We could look at biblical examples like a Nehemiah or a Joseph or a Daniel that play political roles for the Lord God representing him. And we need to do that in our day as God's people. But it should begin with voting. And we've got, you know, Christians in America white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who vote straight Republican tickets when they shouldn't be because some of the people they're voting for sometimes are immoral. You have black African-American born-again Christians who always vote Democrat when they shouldn't be because you have many Democrats in this country that are in favor of homosexual marriage and the killing of little babies and other critical social issues. So um, we need to be salt and light. And the reason this country is going to pot is because so many of God's people are silent. With that said, I would not advocate that our principal responsibility is political. Our principal responsibility is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the number one thing that we should be doing. And that's probably the number one thing that we're not doing. Uh, most Christians today are not looking and praying and asking God for open doors to share the plan of salvation with people. And when God's people are silent, uh, they, all it takes to change a nation is to change the individuals. And you can only change them one person at a time. And if the evangelical church in America really got up and started sharing Christ, this nation could very quickly turn around. But most of God's people, I fear, are silent And it's the sad commentary of the day that we live in. It's the lukewarmness that Jesus said would ultimately come upon the church in the last of the last days. And if indeed we are in the last of the last days, if that is true, then we are seeing living proof of it. That doesn't change. I don't become, well, you know, God's going to fulfill prophecy. So, no, I know one person I can take care of, and that's myself and my own heart. And by God's grace, I'm going to be obedient. Let's go to the next question, Rick. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, Nancy from Hilton Head writes, I have a friend whose daughter is a lesbian, is married to her partner, they live in Maryland, and recently became parents to a baby. As a Christian, what should my response be to my friend as she talks about this new grandchild? Should I show the same excitement and interest I would if the parents were heterosexual? Should I go with my friend to visit the parents and the new baby? Should I send a card or a gift welcoming this baby? Currently, I'm just changing the subject each time this grandchild is mentioned. Well, you know, God says in Ephesians chapter 4, laying aside all falsehoods, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. So God calls us to speak the truth and we're to do it in love with grace and compassion. Now, obviously, this little baby is innocent. 
you know, this one of these women was impregnated, however they accomplished that. And now this lesbian couple have a little baby. The little baby is innocent in the sense that this little child didn't ask to have homosexual parents. And I'm meeting more and more people and more and more children who are being raised in this fashion. We have a a gal in our church who has lesbian mothers and a family in our church in love and compassion reached out to her when she was 10 or 11 years old. And she started coming to some of our things. And as uh, I think she was around 13 or 14, she ended up receiving Christ. And I think right now she's at a Christian university. Uh, Her whole life was totally changed because some Christians had compassion on her uh, and saw her need. And so we need to look past the sin of these so-called parents, and we need to look at the child and do what we can to maintain that relationship. But again, laying aside falsehood. So speak honestly with your friend. Just say, you know, I know you're thrilled that you have this precious little grandbaby now. And I know that must be um, exciting for you. And But I, I also know that you obviously want to see this grandchild come to know the Lord. You know, let's call her friend Mary. I mean, you know, Mary, if your little baby granddaughter died right now, she'd obviously go to heaven. But there will come a day when she is accountable and she will have to make a decision. And God alone knows when that age will be for her. And she obviously has a lot going against her. And that she has lesbian parents who are, in essence, taking their fists and they're raising them in the face of, of God Almighty. And I don't care if they're lesbian. This lesbian part, you know, couple says we're Christians or even born again Christians or anything else. They are raising their fists in the face of God Almighty. They are going against that which is natural. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have adopted a wicked lifestyle. And so... Um, there's a lot going against this child. And so we should pray for the salvation of this little granddaughter of yours. And I'd like to pray with you. And I'd like to pray that your daughter and her lesbian um, person that she's married to could, could find Christ as their personal savior. And they would repent of this sin and, and, and let God work in their hearts. So again, speak the truth in love. It may be that your friend is just, you know, just so, anesthetized by the spirit of this age that she's kind of lost focus. Now, good news, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So some people would look at a child like that and say, that child doesn't stand a chance. She's going to be brought up in a home that models immorality and told that this is normal. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So God can supersede the sin, uh, sinful circumstances that this child is being brought up in. Uh, and so that child will never have an excuse and say, well, God, you know, I didn't stand a chance when they meet God in the judgment. You know, I, I didn't have a chance. You know, my, my mothers were lesbians and, you know, what could I have done? And I was told that, you know, right was wrong and wrong was right. And, you know, um, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So don't change the subject. You need to have an honest conversation with your friend. Speak the truth in love. You say, well, what if my friend rejects me? Well, maybe you should be praying for the salvation of your friend. Maybe your friend's not born again if she indeed rejects you. Now, if, you're, if you know your friend's not born again, then the bigger issue would be to win your friend to Christ first. That would be the bigger issue, your primary issue, your first issue. 
because if your friend comes to know the Lord, you know, we get the mind of Christ and we have uh, an ability to think differently. Uh, we, the natural man, Paul says, does not understand the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot discern them, appraise them, embrace them because they're spiritually appraised. Um, and so it's not until we have a second birth sometimes that we're able to see clearly over some issues that God has dictated to be true. Uh, what's happening though in our culture is God is giving more and more individuals over to a depraved mind. And what's really sad is when a culture, when a nation is given over to a depraved or a reprobate mind, um, you know, in some translations of the world, it's interesting how they translate that uh, word depraved or reprobate. I think maybe the, the translation, you know, in, in most English Bibles, if you have what we call a formal equivalent translation where you're trying to do a word for word correspondence, then you look for one word in English that would capture the Greek word that's used there. Uh, some translations that they say, well, we can't find a single word. And so we'll, we'll use a phrase. And so it's interesting um, how it's done in different cultures. But in one, uh, one culture of the word world, they translated an upside down mind. And I, I think, you know, that's not bad. That's not a bad uh, play off of the Greek word, an upside down mind. And what does an upside down mind do? It calls good evil and evil good. And that's what we're seeing happen with this, uh, the sins of sensuality across our nation, whether it's a heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality. So, you know, if, if you call, you know, um, extramarital sex is, uh, and you speak out against that or premarital sex and you speak out against that, you know, they'll say, well, you're just oppressive and you're cramping my style. And, you know, God intended for us to enjoy ourselves. And so now you're the bad guy or you call a homosexual uh, act, a, a sinful act, an abomination to God. And they say, who are you to judge? Those are evidences of a person who's being given over to a reprobate, a depraved and upside down mind. So one, again, I don't know the situation because I'm just reading the, your question as it came in and don't know all the details, but I would first see if my friend is a believer. And if she is not, then I would start there trying to share the plan of salvation. And if you need some help with that, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. And I've written a very user-friendly booklet entitled, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? You know, I learned over the years that a lot of um, evangelistic training courses are written by people who have the gift of evangelism. And unless you have the gift of evangelism, very often they're difficult to use. Well, the role of an evangelist is to equip the people to do the work of an evangelism. And one of my spiritual gifts that God has given me is in the area of evangelism. So I've tried to write a booklet that would really be equipping to God's people. And so I fill in a lot of the fine details. You know, it's like the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, how can I understand the Bible unless someone explains it to me? And so when we read a verse of scripture, we need to exp explain it in its, you know, historical, grammatical, biblical context. And that's what I try to do. So I've written in really kind of the biblical explanation behind the verses. And uh, you can get that at searchthescriptures.org. There's also a DVD that goes along with it. That is a great training video that a lot of people have used and they've watched it a few times for additional illustrations and other things. 
in helping them to uh, present the gospel clearly. But pray for opportunities. That's one thing Colossians 4 teaches us we should do. And we should pray that when God brings that opportunity, that he would give us the ability to share the gospel clearly. Paul asked the Colossian church to pray for him for those two things. Paul, the great theologian, and if he had a need to make the gospel clear, the one who wrote books like Romans, what must our need be? Uh, is great. So we need God's anointing, God's filling, God's power so that he might give us the very words to say. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next caller. All right. We've got a live one standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, first of all, just uh, what you said before about that young grandbaby, how some people say, you know, I never had a chance to be raised in a situation. It made me think of Bill Murray, the son of, of uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Yes. Who is now born again evangelical and going out and preaching the word. So, you know, like you said, you know, nobody's beyond, you know, God's grace. That's right. But uh, my question is, is uh, uh, might have been several months ago, maybe a year ago, I can't remember when it was, but I called in the Bible line and mentioned Bob and Jerry Boyd on issues in education. And uh, you mentioned how that uh, you and the church uh, were protected from, say, uh, some homosexuals that might say, well, we want to get married here. And you say, well, we can't. It goes against our beliefs. And they could sue you and take the church. And you said you were protected. Uh, with with now the, what the Supreme Court did and now this district judge striking down the ban on same-sex marriage in South Carolina, now and now that it is, according to them, it is indeed law, if they were to come up and say, you know, something were to happen like in Colorado Oregon where a baker would be sued or a photographer would be sued, uh, if they were to... You know, still bring that against the church. Are y'all still protected? We are right now. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind that these kinds of issues are going to be challenged. And I think it's very important that churches, we, we have a written policy, but we need to put it into our constitution and bylaws. So over the last year, I've been working on rewriting them. The constitution bylaws that were given to me when I came in 1990 were written when the church had about 20 people in it. Um, and it was very um, quickly done and unfortunately very poorly done. Uh, so I've been working on those to be able to, a lot of issues were not addressed. Uh, so number one, several years ago at an elders meeting, we had a, um, a policy that we adopted as an elder board defining marriage, but that needs to be put in our constitution and bylaws. And I would say to Anyone listening who is in church leadership, who's a pastor, you need to have some kind of written document that shows prior to the challenge that indeed this is where you stood. And of course, we could defend that in other ways. We could say, listen to the tape played on the Bible line on this day where the pastor clearly stated his position that marriage is defined between a man and a woman. And it is our moral, religious, biblical belief that for a pastor to marry two men or two women is to commit a sin against God. 
or you could refer to back sermons, but whatever you can put in writing would be very, very helpful because churches are going to be challenged on these issues. It's not when, it's not if, it's when. It's going to happen. And so this is like really important. Right now, the Obama administration uh, under the current, you know, attorney general has protected this religious liberty. And it indeed, it is a religious liberty. But again, people are redefining things all the time. And things that we thought were once sacred are no longer sacred. And so someone comes to you and they want to, you know, they understand maybe your, your church needs, say, a church secretary. And um, you say, well, I can't hire you because you're homosexual. Well, you're going to you're going to be probably sued for being discriminated. These things are coming or your church needs a a custodian and you decide not to hire him because he's homosexual. You better be careful how you tell a person that you're not going to hire him because these things are going to be challenged. And we as Christians, look, the next thing I think that's going to happen is you'll have people Again, God could intervene. You know, we're, we're on a course and it's moving very, very fast and it's going in the wrong direction. But when the Obama administration speaks of religious freedom, they don't mean religious freedom like, you know, past administrations have meant it. They have redefined religious freedom to what you want to do within the four walls of your church. But when you want to begin to uh, have uh, policies that, go beyond the four walls. So someone comes from the outside who wants to work for you, or you give a sermon that goes outside the four walls of your church, then they, you might see a real challenge to that religious freedom. So right now, the way that they're finding religious freedoms within your church, and you can do whatever you want in your worship service, but I think that principle is going to be carried out further. And so what will happen, I think next is, okay, Pastor Brogy, you want to preach a sermon that homosexuality is wrong or you don't want to hire some person for a position because they're homosexual, you can do that. You are free to do that, but you are no longer a tax-exempt organization. We as a federal government will no longer protect you. That's the next thing. That's coming down the pike. That is coming down the pike. That's the next thing. And, you know, again, just because a person, people say, well, pastor, take a deep breath, will you? You know, we've got this majority of Republicans and you know, the Republican platform is against homosexuality. Listen, there's a lot of Republicans who are totally in favor of gay marriage. And uh, they have no problem with it whatsoever. So you, again, it's not a matter, as I said earlier, of policies. It's not a matter of uh, persons. Ultimately, it's a matter of, or, or parties. It's a matter of biblical principles on which um, these decisions are being made. So there's a lot coming down the pike. And what you're going to see next, too, is you're going to see some major evangelical leaders who are going to come out in favor of gay marriage. And I I know of two that I believe are going to do that. I'm not going to go on the air and tell you who they are, but I know of two I believe are going to do that. And when that hits the fan, you know, there's going to be more national acceptance of this. Again, when the light is no longer light, when the salt is no longer salt— It gives more freedom for hell to have a holiday and for evil to progress. 
And, um, and again, things can change very, 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 very fast. So we as Christians, we need to be speaking up. We need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be praying for this nation. I don't care whether you like our president or not. You are commanded by God Almighty to pray for him. And you need to be praying for him, everyone listening to me. And that God would help him to make good decisions and those godless people who are around him, that their plans, their wicked plans would be frustrated. And that, um, and that we would seek to um, exercise our assault, like going back to an early question, by voting righteously, not ignorantly. Look, when I go into that voting booth, I want to know what the issues are in front of me. I don't walk in there blind wondering, well, who am I going to vote for today? I want to know where these different people stand. And, um, and if there's uh, some person like the one that represents me and when he comes up, assuming he does for reelection in another, I think it's two years and 16, you'll hear from me if he's up for reelection and he'll hear from me. He's already heard from me, but he won't return my phone calls. Why it is that he's advocating the murder of little babies in the state of South Carolina. He's been blocking the bill which basically said after 20 weeks of pregnancy, it is now a proven medical fact that babies experience pain in the womb when they are aborted. And so all they wanted to do was to say 20 weeks and above, let's not have abortions in South Carolina. But with this so-called pastor, this so-called man of God come to the right in defense of innocent little babies in the womb, not on your life. People like that, they should be voted out of office by God's people. But God's people don't get out to vote. Many of them, you know, on the, especially when it's not a presidential election, they don't even get out. And that's pathetic. And we're wondering why our country is going down the tubes. Anyway, let me get off that soapbox and go to the next question. All right. 525-1859. Toll free. 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. And Trina from Shelburne, New Hampshire writes, In Genesis 22, God refers several times to Isaac being Abraham's only son. Why does he do that when there are other biological sons of Abraham? Well, it is true. In Genesis 22, God says here, "Uh, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I tell you. Um, now, of course, Ishmael is already alive. Uh, Ishmael, remember, was fathered via Hagar. And uh, by this time, of course, it was clear that Ishmael was not to be the rightful heir. If you turn back a chapter here in Genesis, in Genesis 21, it says, And also of the son of the bondwoman, I will make him a nation because he is your seed. Um, but he's not the one through whom Messiah is going to come, as Abraham thought. Um, so even after um, Abraham died, Ishmael is still called Abraham's son. In Genesis 25, um, we read this in verse uh, 9, in his son Isaac and Ishmael, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. So Again, they're both called sons of Abraham, even after the death of Abraham. But on the other hand, it refers to Isaac in a unique way as his only son. Now, the liberal scholars of our day would say, well, this is just another contradiction in the Bible. And as Peter said, many who open the Bible, who teach the Bible, are uh, teaching in a way that they handle the scriptures, Peter said, in such a way as to their own destruction. 
And whenever you hear someone questioning the authority of God's word, or they're a part of a denomination that questions the authority of God's word, get out of it. Uh, don't, don't support it. And so when you dig into the scriptures a little bit, you discover that, you know, behind sonship is this idea of inheritance. It's true both in the physical and in the spiritual realm, like in the spiritual realm in Romans 9. God says, not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. There he's using it in a broad sense. Just because a man is a Jew and he's a descendant of Abraham, he can claim, well, I'm from the nation of Abraham. Uh, That doesn't make him necessarily right from God. He has to have the faith of Abraham. There's still the spiritual decision that he needs to make. And the same was true in terms of the physical realm. Uh, To be a son in the biblical sense, you had to be the heir. Um, and though obviously Abraham loved Ishmael deeply and was the offspring from his own body. And by the way, I think you'll meet Ishmael in heaven when it spoke of, you know, the fact that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He's not there speaking of, uh, salvation, eternal election. He's saying, I'm choosing Isaac as the son from whom Messiah will come. And in that sense, he is the heir. God did not bring Messiah through the lineage of Ishmael. God brought Messiah through the lineage of Isaac. And so he is the uniquely born son. And of course, in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, it tells us that he is a type of Christ. He's an illustration of Christ. How so? Well, one, they they have a miraculous birth, both of them. Christ, of course, miraculous birth can't even begin to be compared, but still they're miracle births. Isaac is born from the deadness of Sarah's womb and from the deadness of Abraham's body. When both had lost their ability to procreate, God rejuvenates their body and uh, gives uh, them the power to be able to have a child. Uh, Two, in his life, uh, you see there on Genesis 22, Uh, a dress rehearsal, so to speak, for what was going to happen on Mount Moriah centuries later. Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. We call it Calvary. We call it Golgotha. It's on the mountains of Moriah. And of course, God illustrates through Isaac. Isaac uh, with Abraham, when the servants ask, um, what are you going to do? He says, we're going to worship and we are coming back. Um, Isaac was going to be sacrificed. Abraham knew that, but he believed that from the ashes, God would raise him back up. Why? Because God had already promised clearly, specifically, definitively to Abraham that through Isaac, the stars, uh, the star out of the stars of the earth would come that from this boy's um, loins, it would be like the sands on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. Uh, that he was going to be the progenitor for the Messiah. So Abraham knew that if God wanted him to sacrifice his son, it could only mean one thing, that he would resurrect him. And so it's not by accident that this boy, really a young man, you see him in some Sunday school pictures, he's seven or eight years old. He's not seven or eight, he's carrying wood up his back. Uh, He's a young man, probably 20 years old. Uh, the Talmud said he was uh, 32 years old. Uh, the Talmud is a Jewish rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament that goes back centuries before the New Testament was written. Uh, he's clearly at least in his 20s, no doubt, or early 20s, somewhere around there. 
Um, and he goes up on the mountain of Moriah. And of course, as Jesus said, no one is going to take my life. I'm going to give it. You know, sometimes we underscore the faith of Abraham, but, you know, we could equally underscore the faith of, of Isaac. Of course, his faith is rooted in the teachings of his father. His father trained him well. And so Isaac could have easily overpowered that elderly man up on that mountain, but he didn't. He laid his life down, but then God provides a substitute, a ram that's caught in the thorns, really a picture of Christ who would later have a crown of thorns around his head. And so God, by picture, uh, illustrates all that is going to happen centuries later. And I will not be at all surprised if uh, the very spot in which uh, Abraham offered Isaac was the spot that we call today Golgotha. I know the Muslims say, well, where their temple is located is where they're on the Temple Mount is where it happened. I, I don't know, but uh, I know it happened in the same geographical locations because the Bible tells me that the Temple Mount is part of the mountains of Moriah. If you've ever been to, to Israel, then you know that. Uh, so it's not by accident that Jesus could say centuries later, uh, Abraham saw my day. Uh, how did he see his day? Because by type, by illustration, by prophecy, by revelation, he knew what Messiah was ultimately going to be. When Paul comes and writes to the Galatians, giving divine commentary, he tells us that God had the gospel preached to Abraham in Genesis chapter 3. So and it's, arti- it's an articular infinitive in the Greek New Testament, not just good news, but the good news preached to him. So God had uh, told Abraham what was going to happen by direct revelation. He illustrated it for him there on the mountains of Moriah. So in that sense, Isaac is different. He is the son of promise. He is in that sense, his only son. In fact, in Hebrews 11, he's called the only begotten son. There's only two people in all the New Testament in which that term monogene is used. Four times, if I remember, it's used of the Lord Jesus, and once it's used of Isaac, because Isaac, again, is a picture of Christ. Yes, he had another son, Ishmael, but he was not the son of promise. In fact, he had six more sons after that. When God rejuvenated his body and allowed him to procreate with Sarah, Isaac, he later married a lady named Keturah, and they had six more children together. So, um, but none of those sons in that sense are called Abraham's only son, only, only Isaac, because he is the heir. He is the son of promise from whom Messiah would come. Great question. Appreciate you asking it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good. 525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and, uh, let's go ahead here and, um, I uh, just wanted to make sure we didn't have a live caller standing All right, by. Go ahead. Uh, Darren from Beaufort writes, uh, what do you think of the teachings and principles of Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, it's a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a good question, not only in terms of uh, their success rate, but it's also a good question in terms of whether, you know, it's biblically based or whether it's based in, you know, Christianity. Uh, if if you read the second edition of Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous in the, in the, in the preface, they say that about fifty percent of the people who go through the program get sober. Now, when they make that statement in the introduction 
to their book. It's not based, as best we can tell, on any research, any numbers that they've done, but that's an, a guesstimate that they've provided. You know, I read an article some years back, two or three years ago. It came out in a journal put out by Harvard Medical uh, School. And I think it was called the Harvard Medical Health Review. And uh, they say only about 10% of the people in America who have a problem with alcohol ever seek treatment. And out of those 10% that seek treatment, about 40% of them um, can recover spontaneously. Uh, they, they don't necessarily need a program. Uh, so some would question the success rate of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. But listen, I, I know there's some people who are listening to me who have been helped by it, and I'm, I'm glad you have. But I do think that they have drifted from their roots. Some would say, well, they never drifted from their roots at all, that their root was not good. The guy who founded it, Dr. Bob Smith, many would say he was a Christian. Some would say, I'm not so sure. Some would advocate that he was involved in Ouija boards and other things. I I, I don't know. Um, You go online, you can read mixed reviews on the guy's life, uh, at least in years past, and maybe that's a little bit debatable. But one thing that's not debatable is one of their principles, I think it's his second principle, it says, we've come to believe in a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity. Um, So they believe in a power greater than themselves. Well, what is that power? Well, for some people in the group, it might be the tree outside. For some people, it might be a doorknob. Uh, for some people, it might be that whatever they've created God to be. And some, some people in the group will refer to God as her or some as him. Uh, and if you've been a Christian, depending on the chapter you're in, though the national uh, organization has some standards, if you want to call Jesus Christ your high, higher power, that's fine. But as soon as uh, you say that other people need Jesus Christ to find true, genuine freedom, then that's not fine. And so what have they done? Well, you know, in some respects, they say, look, if you want the doorknob to be your higher power, it doesn't matter to us, whatever you want to choose. Well, that's man making God in his own image. That's man manufacturing God the way he wants God to be. And that's idolatry. And so you can really debate, you know, how good it is. Now, I know there are Christian people who have gone because in some chapters, maybe it's run by a born-again Christian because they're compassionate and they don't necessarily follow the national rules. And and they might really push Jesus Christ as the only ultimate higher power, but the national organization does not. So, you know, it's like anything else. You can have what's written on paper and then what filters down into the local chapters might be might be different. So you can't go by, well, let me tell you what it was like at my AA meeting. I can just tell you what the national rules are, and you can read them online as well as anybody else. So um, I don't think that in that respect uh, it, it, it's good. Um because you don't want to be a part of an organization that fosters idolatry. Uh, Again, I'm grateful for people who've gone, who've been helped. But if someone asks me, you know, what I think, I would say, well, go to a Christian one. Uh, There is a group called Reformers Anonymous, and it, it takes the 12 steps, but it really translates them into biblical principles and rewrites them and uh, works through 
biblical principles of life change found in Christ. You know, when, when someone comes to faith, real faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, if any man is in, in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a brand new person inside. Now, I will meet people on occasion who will say, well, you know, I got saved and I just never had a desire for another drink. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not typical. That would be like a man who came out of a fornicating, adulterous background and he gets saved and he said, I would never felt tempted again to lust after a woman or to, you know, be involved in some illegitimate sexual relationship probably just doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that temptation dissolves when you get saved. And it doesn't mean that you'll never want another drink. And so with that said, I would say that a lot of people who come out of alcohol, drug backgrounds need some accountability. One of the most important things they need is to get involved in a uh, small discipleship group. And so when people come to faith in our Christ and our in to faith in Jesus Christ at Community Bible Church, we have a class that every new Christian goes through. It never ends because by God's grace, virtually every week there's someone coming to meet the Lord as their Savior. And so we immediately plug that new believer into the new Christians class. We call it the discovery class, and it's structured in such a way that they can start any week they want. And for a lot of those new believers from even alcohol and drug backgrounds, they begin to learn the principles on how to walk with the Lord. And that's really what they need. Um, Some people need more accountability than that. And they need some watch care for 24 seven. And so there are some ministries that we use. There's uh, the Elam home that Jerry Falwell started. His daddy was an alcoholic drunk by God's grace. He found the Lord before he died. But in his honor, he started the Elam home. I don't know, maybe 50 years ago. And it's a home for alcoholic men where they come and they stay there for, you know, six, seven weeks and they learn the biblical principles and they're far away from alcohol and there's no alcohol within their reach. And, and they need that kind of focused accountability without any distractions. Uh, there's another one that we use called the Hebron home, which is in North Carolina and it's up in Boone, North Carolina. That's a 90-day program, and the sister movement of that is called the Grace Home, and that's right up here in South Carolina, up at Lake Santee. And again, they're both 90-day programs, but what they're doing is they're walking you through the biblical principles. Now, if you go to a lot of the secular programs where you go and you stay and you know you have 24-7 accountability, they average somewhere between three and $500 a day to go. So it's for the wealthy. Uh, Most people can't afford that, obviously. Uh, These two programs are for free um, because of churches like Community Bible Church that help underwrite them and finance them so that people can go. Obviously, it costs them to house someone, to keep the building heated and air-cooled and to feed them and so forth. They have, on average, about an 80% success rate. The secular programs that you spend three to $500 a day have about a 25% success rate. What's the difference? The difference is the Word of God in changed lives and understanding the biblical principles that should govern our life and help us to walk with God. Well, another Bible line is gone. Another hour has slipped away, but we're so glad that you were able to join us today. These are placed online after each broadcast at wagp.net or searchthescriptures.org. 
so you can always download them through your phone app or on your computer. Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.